Denver, Colorado. I'm your host, Eric Singular. We're sitting alongside president and founder of the Hoban Law Group, Bob Hoban. Today we are talking about the next CBD, what's on the horizon for minor cannabinoids, terpenes, and flavonoids. And we are joined by the principal consultant of Hemp Ace International and the host of Hemp Barons, the renowned Joy Beckerman. Joy, thank you so much for being here with us today. Such a privilege and a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And Joy, where do you find yourself? As we sit here in Coronavirus Wednesday? Yes. (laughs) I am riding out the storm here in Edmonds, Washington, just north of the Seattle area. I uh, recently relocated back here um, from New York and... uh, New York isn't a place where I want to be right now, uh, and one hour north of the city. Oh, absolutely. Well, Go ahead, well, Bob. Joey, how, 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 I was just going to say, how, how, has, uh, how has life uh, been impacted just your day-to-day by what's happening in Washington, uh, surrounded uh, against this backdrop of the coronavirus? How has it changed your life? Indeed, I do work from home. I work remotely. I travel so much that I have to make offices like you, Bob, out of uh, airports and coffee shops. So in that respect, working from home is nothing unusual for me. What is unusual is not having an event, a meeting, a hearing, or, or to have to travel specifically, which is often the case. I travel sometimes five times a month to get to a speaking engagement, a large event. But normally during the day, there's going to be a meeting, a hearing, a dinner, some type of event. And so to not have any of that traveling, that is the most impactful thing. And it's lovely to actually have a little break from it and be able to observe and and reset. Well, it gives us more opportunities to do things like this. Absolutely. That's that's for sure. I've, I've been referring to it as the COVID pause. It's nice to have a pause. Sometimes you need to be forced to have a pause. I do believe that's what's happening. So Joy, we talk a lot about the whole plant. And up until now, it seems like there has just been such a focus on CBD. And of course, there is other cannabinoids. There is grain. There is fiber, all in the hemp plant. What is on the horizon for these other cannabinoids? We've heard a lot about CBG. Can you tell us kind of what your forecast is going forward? CBG and, of course, CBN we're hearing a lot about, too. Uh, And folks are purport to be growing to extract and focus on just those cannabinoids. I think it's going to be interesting. Of course, we have to deal with the FDA's recent guidance position and their uh, lack of familiarity with the extraction process in general, which I think causes a bit of confusion and causes them to take some of the the stark guidance positions that they do. For example... When we talk about the IND preclusion, the investigation-only drug preclusion, which means essentially, in a nutshell, uh, if a substance has been approved as a drug or it's been authorized for investigation as a new drug for which substantial clinical investigations have been made public, then that sense that same substance will not be allowed to be marketed as a dietary supplement or a food. And so for these minor cannabinoids, that anything other than CBD, for example, um, we, uh, 
we would see that if it were in isolate form, I think, and we're not aware, by the way, thus far, and Bob may be, we haven't checked in the last five minutes or so, of any uh, clinical trials or approved drugs, clinical studies or approved drug of the minor cannabinoids. So um, I think at that point, if we wanted to use an isolate of a minor cannabinoid, an IND uh, would be in order. Someone would do an investigational new drug application thus causing the same problem that we have with CBD. Folks then would not be able to use those uh, cannabinoids, market them as a dietary supplement or a drug. Um, however, if we're selling an extract that includes minor cannabinoid, um, it gets a little bit different. Having said that, if the extract also includes CBD, it seems that the FDA's current guidance, guidance position would apply, and they would say, regardless of the fact that you have more CBD than CBD, the fact that you have CBD in it at all is going to cause the IND preclusion uh, to be triggered. Now, there are some legal arguments around that. It's, it's controversial because, and when we talk about the confusion that the FDA has or their lack of familiarity around the extraction process, we get into, and I'd love to hear Bob's thoughts on this, this hair-splitting idea of naturally occurring cannabinoids versus concentrated amounts of naturally occurring cannabinoids that are synthesized or standardized to a specific uh, formulation. Um, but with those with those extracts that include minor cannabinoids and uh, CBD, it's possible then that an end that that folks would go for a self-affirmed grass right now, generally recognized as safe process, which would include a 14-day rangefinder study and a 90-day definitive study which studies could then be used as long as you didn't change your extract formulation to parlay in the future into a new dietary ingredient application in NDI. And so sorry for the confusion. IND stands for investigational new drugs and NDI is new dietary ingredient. No, and you, you raised, you raised a couple of, of really interesting points and, and this idea of naturally occurring cannabinoids, certainly have been in our food supply chain for quite some time. There's not a question about it. It's even recognized uh, in case law and in studies and in notes by governments around the world that there were trace amounts of cannabinoids in, for example, hemp seeds and the hemp seed oil that's cold pressed. But they don't recognize that as being the same thing as what we see today. It's not exactly what we see today. So there's something called a constituent part analysis that you have to do when you get into that. In other words, was that particular cannabinoid a significant constituent part of something else that was already recognized as a food or a supplement ingredient or product? And does that level meet the standard to sort of get us through the, the notion that it was sold prior to the drug? Uh, the, the, the IND, as you mentioned, the drug study. So that's where the legal analysis would go. And frankly, that's up to a court. So it's not black and white that if you prove that and that there's some sort of magic number in the sand that says if all of a sudden uh, it had this many cannabinoids in it at this point in time, even hemp seed oil, then all of a sudden it, 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 it qualifies uh, as something that's been pre-dechet and in our food pipeline for a period of time. So that's kind of where the legal analysis will go. But something interesting also happened today. When you talk about rare and minor cannabinoids, um, 
We're talking about things that aren't necessarily present in vast quantities in the cannabis plant without some sort of breeding mechanism. In other words, CBD was the first to come out besides THC in terms of major cannabinoids because CBD was bountiful in hemp plants and they bred those hemp plants to get higher levels of CBD. But what about the other cannabinoids? Can you keep breeding and creating those varieties? Or, or this goes to today's news, do you synthesize those? And what the heck does it even mean from a scientific perspective to synthesize a cannabinoid, to take something and create it instead of deriving it from a plant? So today I read a, a release from a, a company out of the European Union called CB Depot uh, that their novel food application was validated. And that novel food application involved a pure synthesized, being the keyword form of CBD or cannabidiol, as a novel food ingredient. What they mean by validated is it was recognized and they're going to process it through the natural channels under the novel food ingredient code uh, under the European Food and Safety Authority. So as you synthesize cannabinoids, is it the same thing? Is that where you're going to get CBN and CBG and, and other minor or rare cannabinoids? Is that the only way to efficiently get them? Or what are you seeing out there? It's such a fascinating question. And, and I find I find my own opinions, which, which can change over time. I mean, I think we've all learned in hemp and any form of cannabis that we've got to pivot as we learn new things, as science and data comes into our field of awareness. Um, and I find in responding to your question that I, I may have a bias here. Um, and, and the bias meaning that I, and I particularly have an affinity, a great affinity for that particular company, CB Depot in Europe, an incredible advocate and, and cannabis intellectual and frankly hero at the WHO and UN levels um, is owns that company. Um, and so I, I'm excited to speak with him to learn a little bit more because I think we would share in many ways this bias that I find myself having. And that is um, that I, I just want, I, 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 I just want things to be natural. Now concentrated amounts of naturally occurring cannabinoids um, I'm all for this synthetic issue just at, at current time uh, does not sit right with me. And I don't mean that that's an attitude that I've developed today for the last several years of my consciousness, learning about this plant through today. Um, my attitude is that synthetic and cannabinoids are, are not two great tastes that go great together. Um, and, and I think in a way that I could underscore that is, as you know, I'm the vice president of the U.S. Hemp Authority, uh, which is created and we're on version 2.0 now, a much improved version uh, from the first version that had to be born into the world of our certification guidance procedures. It's a third party, independent, verified certification program for hemp dietary supplements, including cosmetics. And we created a definition for synthetic cannabinoids. Um, and we are not allowing them to be eligible for our seal. Now, are there folks who have, who have passed the audit, who use the seal, who also include, uh, synthetic cannabinoids in their product line? Yes, there is one or, or there are one or two, but they don't use our seal on those products because we're just not ready and comfortable to go there yet. Um, and at the same time, I equally am getting ready to send an email congratulating Boris on this approval. So 
I don't know if I'm adding so much to what you're getting to here, but um, but I what I have seen of the minor cannabinoids has been natural, concentrated amounts of naturally occurring cannabinoids and not synthetic. And, and that's a good point. And I think that, you know, the science would seem to, to, to indicate that naturally occurring cannabinoids, particularly in their natural or at least a broad spectrum type format, are the most impactful for the human body. But then again, if we're talking about a product that's intended to have an impact on the human body, um, that brings in, you know, the notion of drugs, supplements versus food products and where does it fit? And this is an interesting twist that the European Commission here is effectively um, going down the road, it seems, and again, this, this is, I just read this article today, so there's a lot more to, to, to uncover here. But if they're saying that a isolated, pure form that's synthesized of CBD is acceptable, it seems to be the opposite way that our FDA is going, where the effectively isolated forms of any cannabinoid, unless you go straight through a drug approval process, to your point earlier, that they're not going to be allowed in food and supplements. So this is really an interesting point in time to see these sort of titans uh, against the backdrop of a, of a global pandemic, these World Health Organization type entities, the European equivalent of the FDA, the FDA itself happening in the European, uh, in the United Kingdom, sort of coming together to, uh, to really shape this. And of course, as you'd expect, when government agencies act, there's not a lack of, co- uh, a lot of cohesiveness and there's a lot of fractionated opinions about where things are going. So we'll definitely stay tuned on that. And, and you and I will definitely continue to talk about that. And we'd like to, you know, have you back at some point in the future. And, and likewise, I, I'll, I'll talk with you on your podcast as these things evolve. But let's talk for a moment about recent, recent news, big news. So Joy, recently you had decided to leave the HIA and the HIA, of course, is an organization that so many of us have supported for so long and has been around and, and really had carved its niche uh, many, many, many years ago, uh, effectively being an advocate and a trade group for this organization. But we're living in a complex society today. We're living in a complex industry where the hemp industry means a different thing quite literally every single week from cannabinoids to rare cannabinoids to terpenes to grain and so forth and so on. Tell us a little bit about you know, why you decided to leave and just what, what is your perspective about the future of hemp related trade groups? How can they maintain their relevance? Absolutely. And we're seeing them pop up left and right. And, and I often see, um, sort of adult and medical cannabis trade associations sort of packing, as I, as I often say, haphazardly packing hemp, uh, into their repertoire as if you could handle all of the, subtle and necessary issues of law and policy and standards for both. Um, you know, and the, and the HIA, of course, was formed in 1994. And I, some of those founders uh, who are still very much involved in the hemp industries are some of my dearest friends and colleagues, frankly, uh, brothers and sisters. Um, and so, you know, there's that incredible legacy history of the HIA, which First made its mark, of course, taking the DEA to court in the early 2000s when the DEA arbitrarily, as we started to gain some traction in the hemp grain uh, industry, cold-pressed hemp seed oil, sterilized hemp seeds for human consumption, um, they decided to come up with that interim uh, rule 
to make cold-pressed hemp seed oil or sterilized hemp seeds meant for human consumption, Schedule One controlled substances. Just absolutely ridiculous. Um, and and so that was, you know, that was sort of the, the big first major thing. And the HIA has gone from, uh, I believe in 2015, somewhere around 100 members, then to 300 members, then to 500 members in 2018, then to 1,000 members in 2019, and something like 2,000 members in 2020. And that is just a, a huge amount of membership, and it's members who need to be served. They're paying dues. Um, and, the, and there's quite an, a mission to advance with all of these trade associations. You know, for me, I, I lead other organizations, as, as we just spoke about, the vice president of the U.S. Temp Authority, executive vice president of the U.S. Hemp Roundtable on behalf of Elixinol. Um, and for me, I just, time being as valuable as it is, it's critical for all that I'm involved in um, to be working with organizations that have the infrastructure and the function and funding in place uh, to support my aggressive agenda for hemp reform, for standards, uh, for law and policy, and that can really fulfill uh, its mission. And it was time for me uh, to resign from the HIA and to focus more on those organizations that have uh, that all of that in place, um, so that the the return on the investment of my time and efforts are are quantifiable and making a lot of, of progress. No, it, it definitely is. Uh is a is a is a, a moment in time and a, and a, and a change uh, in leadership there, and uh, we'll see how all of that uh, kind of stuff plays out. Um, and Eric, and you I, were talking. I, 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 yeah, I, I was wondering. Sorry, we'll just wait five seconds. I had one more little piece, which of course you can edit out. I'll wait three seconds, guys. Additionally, when we're talking about trade associations that are really, you know, executing on on their job, so to speak. When we look at, for example, uh, the dietary supplement industry, which is another trade association industry that I've become quite familiar with over the last five years. And there also need to be standards for, for membership, a vetting committee um, to make sure that the members of our organizations are behaving in some type of a monitoring process um, to make sure that they're behaving in a way that is in accordance with the law and that they're complying as good leaders and good players. And, and I think what happens when organizations get too large um, and they don't have the funding or the staff or infrastructure in place to, to do that, it can become problematic. Um, and so it, it was also very important to me to work with uh, organizations that have that type of a vetting process because of my own professional integrity and, and standards and brand and what I do for a living. It's just very important to me to align myself with compliance and protocols and SOPs in, in place uh, to do us to monitor that. Well, Joy, and that makes perfect sense. Then you need you need to kind of focus your efforts where they are going to be the most fruitful. And another subject I, I wanted to just hop over to real quickly, I know the, the topic was cannabinoids, but, you know, as we look at hemp in the U.S., we saw a lot of farmers grow for CBD. And now, of course, that biomass has just been sitting on their farm. 
Now, I want to think a little bit about more of the whole plant and, and really the grain aspect. Um, you know, New Frontier Data just put out a, uh, a little piece on how COVID-19 may increase domestic hemp grain production. Tell us a little bit about kind of what are the, the challenges to grain processing, the status kind of in the United States versus in Canada, and kind of how you're going to play into all of that with, uh, with processing. Thank you for asking. Well, I am the proud uh, co-founder and senior advisor to Colorado Hemp Works right there in Longmont, Colorado, near you folks. Uh, the nation's first post-prohibition hemp grain processing facility. And what I can tell you is that we are looking for grain farmers, existing grain farmers, folks who, who have lots of acres, bins, combines, equipment, silos. They are already in the business of grain farming, and they're looking to add hemp into their rotation, coupled with the fact that this is the first year, as you well know, that federal crop insurance is available. And having said that, March 16th was the deadline to apply for that crop insurance. And part of those application materials included needing a contract. And so we currently have all the conventional versus USDA certified organic. And, and I think that's a big piece to this answer here. Um, we, Colorado Hemp Works, have access to well, all the conventional hemp grain uh, that we can get our hands on for, for 2020. It's the USDA certified organic hemp grain that we very much um, are looking for. And those acres are competitive, particularly in Canada. The USDA, the uh, certified organic um, acres are very competitive. They, uh, there's not a ton of that land certified up in, up in Canada. And they are using the land that is certified for what they might consider to be more valuable crops um, than hemp grain. Um, so, so there's certainly a, a huge need right now, and we've put out calls to action. I've, I've sent uh, emails to every uh, grain-producing state, their departments of ag, their farmers' bureaus, their, the farmers' union, everybody that I could saying, hey, we're looking for contracts for existing grain farmers looking to put hemp into their rotation, and they have USDA-certified grain, uh, certified acres irrigated. Um, please don't call us if you don't meet this criteria because your time is valuable and God knows so is Colorado Hemp Works. Um, so I think that uh, it's a, a wonderful opportunity. There's so many things that are coming out of this pandemic, of this what I call transformative challenge, planetary challenge that we're all facing here. And that will hopefully be one of them. And because we've been talking over and over in, in public speaking and anytime I can get an audience, please, for the love of God, Learn to pivot from extract hemp. If you must, you feel so attached that you've got to grow for CBD this year, do me a favor, do us a favor, um, the industry a favor, and do some variety trials on your land, in your soil, in your climate of some different types, grain, fiber, and dual uh, crop and tri-crop varieties so that when you're ready to pivot, when the infrastructure comes to you, you will know these other types of of hemp that can grow in your land and you can serve those much more dependable and reliable industries. I don't think there's a much more important message uh, to be sent to any farmer who is thinking about growing industrial hemp this year is the need for those variety trials and simply to just consider 
other options besides CBD. Um, you, you make you know, a great point that this is the first year where we're seeing states use the, uh, the guidance from the interim final rule. We have services like crop insurance available. Um, Joy, we're, we're running short on time. We definitely want to have you on here again. Do you have any parting thoughts uh, for us? Or as you said, this is a transformative opportunity. I really think that's a beautiful way to characterize this pandemic. Uh, certainly uh, a more hopeful perspective than, uh, than you can find in other places. I think that the, the most important thing, if we talk about a coronavirus uh, sort of nexus here, is how much we want to ensure and working very hard, I'm sure, Holden Law and all of the advocacy efforts uh, that Bob and everyone on the HLG team, HLG team is involved in are working on this, and certainly in the organizations that I work with and other freelance type of, of activist groups that I've been pulled into gleefully and gladly pulled into, to make sure that hemp is included in the stimulus package um, to the maximum. Um, and we, that's really the most important thing in the, in the immediate time frame is that we are advocating for hemp inclusion um, as a strategic food source and within that stimulus package. And of course, the stimulus package was just signed on Friday, so there's still a lot to unpack there, but I'll throw this one to Bob really fast. Bob, do you see any opportunities for hemp growers or hemp small businesses to take advantage of any of the economic benefits or uh, opportunities available through that stimulus package? Yeah, I I don't see how the stimulus package prohibits hemp-based businesses from obtaining relief uh, to the extent that they would otherwise qualify. But I can tell you, because we've been through a couple of these SBA applications over the last few days, one of the very first questions you're asked uh, as a prerequisite to determine whether you can even get access to the application is, does your business do anything that's uh, effectively illegal under federal law? So a marijuana-related business, of course, has to answer that question, yes. A hemp-related business does not. And then, you know, to Joe's point, is it going to come through uh, if under scrutiny some sort of person at the SBA says, well, wait a second, this person's not in the hemp business. They're in the CBD business, and CBD is not regulated yet by the FDA, and accordingly it's illegal under federal law. I'm not saying that that's the right position because I don't believe it is the right position. But things like that could occur upon scrutiny when you look at hemp or CBD-based businesses' applications for this relief. But I am quite confident, and there was an article in the Hemp Business uh, Daily today that talked a little bit about why uh, that author believed that hemp businesses would qualify for stimulus funds, and I believe that that would be uh, the same, and I would agree with that perspective. But like I said, when the hands of decision, uh, when the decision gets in the hands of a, a bureaucrat, uh, an agency representative uh, who doesn't know hemp from marijuana, from cannabis, from what's legal or what's not, uh, some questions might arise, and it's not crystal clear yet because it's just the very beginning of going out even trying to get these funds, let alone trying to understand what's going to happen when you get them and how you're going to utilize those funds. So I do think that hemp businesses are protected. And we'll just have to fight for them to make sure those checks check arrive. That's right. The fight continues. Amen. <laughs> 
Joy, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll definitely need to have you again on soon, hopefully after this pandemic is in the rearview mirror. And we so appreciate you being here. Truly wonderful. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Eric. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Hoban Minutes special series on coronavirus and cannabis. You can head on over to hoban.law for more information on this podcast or the Hoban Law Group. If you have any ideas for subjects that we should be covering or any questions you want to pose to Bob or myself, shoot us an email at media at hoban.law. Stay tuned for the next episode on this special series, Coronavirus and Cannabis.